Hello, welcome to the Bradley Lectures podcast and a very happy new year. I'm your host, Jackson Wolford. This year, 2021, marks 30 years since the final official end of the Soviet Union. The legacy of its creation, rule, and dissolution remains central to events both in Europe and in the United States, as the recent SolarWinds hacking revelations reiterate. At the same time, issues of how a society ought to reckon with the moral, or immoral, history of its political regime hold center stage in American discourse. In today's lecture, we'll hear from journalist, historian, and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Anne Applebaum on the history of Soviet ideology in Eastern Europe from 1945 to 1956. While originally delivered in 2012, its story of totalitarian ideology and alternative facts retains all its relevance today. Let's listen in. And now, as was once traditional at public meetings, which once took place, I don't know, a few hundred thousand, no, just a few thousand miles to the east of this room, I'm going to begin with a song. Don't worry, I won't actually sing the song. But even when read aloud and even in English, I think the spirit of this song provides a good introduction to the subject of my talk this evening, which happens to be one of the central themes of my new book, Iron Curtain, and namely the theme is the nature of collaboration in post-war Stalinist Eastern Europe. The title is The Song of the Party, and it was the anthem of the East German Communist Party, and the lyrics go like this. She gave us everything, sun and wind, always generous. Wherever she was, there was life. We are what we are because of her. She never abandoned us. Even in a frozen world, we were warmed. And now the refrain. The party, the party, she is always right. And comrades, so it will always remain. Since he who fights for the right is always right, he who defends mankind is always right. As raised to life by Lenin's spirit, as welded by Stalin, the party, the party, the party, and in German it goes departai, departai, departai. As I said, I won't try and sing it. Now to our modern, or maybe I should say postmodern ears, those are not exactly emotive words. On the contrary, they seem absurd, much in the way that old films of Hitler can seem absurd. And if you poke around on the internet, as I once did, you can now find Mickey Mouse singing that song in somebody's homemade video. And you can also find spiky-haired teenagers pretending to dance to it. And, you know, without an intact ideology to support them, the art forms of Soviet-style totalitarianism are not merely outdated, they're laughable. And it's very hard for us now to imagine how anyone could have sung them with a straight face. Nevertheless, if one had been standing in that room, much like this one, a couple thousand miles to the east of here, around about 1950, everyone around you would have been singing. Some people, let me stress, would have been singing because they truly believed in the words of the song, and because they really did think the party was always right, or they hoped it would always be right. In this period, right after the devastation of World War II, a cataclysmic crisis which would cause many people in Eastern as, as well as Western Europe to doubt everything they'd been taught and to believe that all of society had to be reorganized, communism seemed to some people like the only viable alternative to the failed democratic capitalism which had so spectacularly collapsed in the 1930s. And the world had been shattered and communism offered a better way to rebuild it. Many others, though, would have been singing because they were, for the lack of a better word, reluctant collaborators. Now, so these were people who did not necessarily believe the slogans that they read in the newspaper, but neither did they feel compelled to denounce them, and certainly not those who were writing them. They didn't necessarily think Stalin was an infallible leader, but neither did they tear down his portraits. They didn't necessarily believe that the party was always right, or I should say the party, the party, the party was always right. But nor did they stop singing the song. 
And in fact, the horrifying genius of Soviet communism, as it was conceived in the 1920s, as perfected in the 1930s, as imposed experimentally on the Baltic states in eastern Poland in 1939 and then spread by force across Eastern Europe after 1945, was the system's ability to get so many skeptical people in so many different kinds of countries and so many disparate cultures to play along for so many years without much open protest. So at least for a few decades, Soviet-style communists ruled primitive Albania and industrial Bohemia. And they ran eastern Germany, where the populace had experienced a horrific wave of rape and looting during the Red Army's invasion, not to mention a decade's worth of anti-Soviet propaganda. At the same time, they ran Poland, which had fought and won a bloody war with the Soviet Union in 1920, and which had then resisted the Germans with one of the largest resistance movements in Europe during the war. Why then was this system so successful? Why, at least briefly, did it appear to flourish? And how did it spread to so many countries? I won't tell you the whole story. For that, you have to read my book, or else listen to me talk all night long. But I'm going to give you a few elements tonight. Leon very rightly said that one of the points I make in this book from the, from the beginning is that there were pieces of the institutional pieces of the Soviet system were placed very early on in Eastern, long before the Cold War began. And I'm going to describe a few of them. The Red Army and the Soviet secret police, which unexpectedly, in fact, found themselves occupying Central Europe in 1945, were, to be blunt, very well prepared to take charge. You know, they had already practiced the techniques of totalitarian takeover in their own Central Asian republics in the 1920s, and as I say, in Eastern Poland and the Baltic states. Even before they got to Warsaw and Berlin, they had trained cadres and secret agents scattered across the region who were already working within and around the, those regions' communist parties. They also had a plan, although I should be careful about using that word. From archival documents, we know that Stalin had no doubt that sooner or later, all of Europe would be run by communists. We often don't take seriously the ideological language of Stalin and the people around him. But you know, when he spoke, he spoke with the certainty of he used the language of international proletarian revolution. And at some level, we need to take that seriously. What he wasn't certain was how long it would take. There's a famous wartime memo written by his foreign minister, which spoke of decades before the, it doesn't, they don't say Soviet take control, they say before the proletarian revolutions, the proletarian dictatorship controls all of Europe. And so in 1945, he proceeded with caution. You know, instead of attempting a full-blooded takeover and use of mass murder, Soviet officials in the region aimed to control in the beginning just a very few key institutions. I became interested in what these institutions are because I think it tells you a lot about the totalitarian mindset and the Soviet way of thinking in this period. One of these institutions was the radio. Everywhere the Red Army went, its soldiers immediately occupied radio stations, sometimes on day one. The first Soviet broadcast from Berlin went out in German on May 13, 1945, less than two weeks after Nazi radio's final broadcast, which had been the announcement of Hitler's death. In these early days, the NKVD cared about radio far more than newspapers or magazines because they reckoned precisely that radio was the medium that could reach the masses. It could reach the peasants and the workers whose support they expected to receive. Again, you see the evidence of their faith in their own ideology. You know, above all, Soviet officials believed in the efficacy of their own propaganda. Propaganda works. We can persuade people. We can change the way people think. Another tool from the, sort of the opposite side of the spectrum that Soviet officials in the region deployed very early on, 
again, long before they attempted to control all of politics, long before the Cold War began, was the secret police. And the training of what would become the Polish Security Department, the Urzand Bezpieczeństwa, UBE, known in Polish as UBEX, began as early as 1940 at a special school near Smolensk. The Red Army had identified people in the territories of eastern Poland, and the NKVD had identified people in the territories of eastern Poland whom they trained to become secret policemen. In Germany, the Stasi were tutored from the very earliest days also by the NKVD, and later they enjoyed an especially close relationship with the KGB, whose symbols they adopted, the sword and shield was adopted by the Stasi as well, and whose techniques they copied. You know, all these secret policemen had strange extra-legal status in the territories where the Red Army was in place. So even before all the region's communist governments were dominated by communists, they had power because they were backed by Soviet power, by Soviet reinforcements, as everyone well knew. Now, these first secret policemen used terror, but they did so in a far way far more sophisticated than we sometimes now imagine. Central to the success, if, if I can use that word, of the Soviet regime, in spreading its system, and incidentally central to the success of so many regimes in the Arab world and Asia, Africa, and Latin America, which later imitated it, was the USSR's careful use not of mass terror and mass violence, as I said, which they avoided after 1945, but of selected violence, so violence targeted at elites, at intellectuals, at businessmen, at priests, at ex-politicians, and above all, at anyone capable of leading or organizing any kind of spontaneous organization. So ultimately, they were determined to control not only the government and not only the, the police and the media and the economy, but also all of the elements of what we now call civil society. And so, very early on, long before they nationalized industry, for example, the Soviet occupiers of Eastern Europe harassed and disbanded youth groups. They forbade the creation of independent sporting organizations. They treated anyone who worked for religious or even a secular charity with intense suspicion. Though in Hungary in 1946, the interior minister banned more than a thousand groups, including the Hungarian Athletic Club, the Count Szekenyi Association of War Veterans, and the Association of Christian Democratic Tobacco Workers. In Poland in 1949, Leon has mentioned this already, Members of the Young Communist Movement stormed into the Polish YMCA and smashed all the jazz records. So in East Germany, in the first months after the war, the occupying Soviet power spent a good deal of time trying to determine which kinds of organizations would and would not be tolerated. And there are letters back and forth discussing which ones are okay and which ones aren't. I note for the record that they were very adamant that hiking clubs be banned at all costs. Now, these efforts were supplemented and, and, and augmented, of course, by economic policies, by the redistribution of land for early nationalization of heavy industry, and over time, by creeping control, state control of retail and small business. But just because they were Marxists and just because their rhetoric therefore made it sound as if they believed the economy mattered above all, it doesn't mean they always behaved as if the economy mattered above all else. On the contrary, they were interested in, as I say, extending control over all aspects of society. And for that reason, I believe, and I argue in the, in the beginning of this book, that the nations of Eastern Europe at that time are correctly described using the word totalitarian, a word originally coined for the benefit of Mussolini, who also gave the best definition of it in one of his speeches. Everything within the state, nothing outside the state, and nothing against the state. Now, though they did not always succeed, it was certainly the Soviet, and it's true the case that the Soviet and East European commons intended to create totalitarian regimes which kept everything within the state. 
And towards the pursuit of that goal, by about 1948, the communist regimes of Eastern Europe controlled not only the economy, not only property, not only the political sphere, but also sports, leisure time, hospitals, universities, summer camps, children's after-school activities, art, music, museums. That ambition to achieve total control and, and the attempts that were made to do it put people in ethical and moral binds, which we find very difficult to imagine today. Let me give you an example of how that worked. In, in 1947, the Soviet military administrators in East Germany passed a regulation governing the activity of publishing houses and printers. So the decree did not nationalize the printing presses. It merely decreed that they had to be licensed. And it also stated that all licensed printing presses were required to print only books and pamphlets that had been ordered by central planners. Failure to comply with these simple guidelines did not necessarily lead to murder or arrest, but it could cause the printing press to be shut down. So, now imagine you are the owner of a printing press in Dresden, and you are presented with such a law. You have a wife who is ill, and you have two teenage children. Your cousin was arrested last year and has disappeared. You've lost your family home during the firebombing of Dresden, and you're living in a small state-owned apartment. How likely is it that you will defy the law and agree to print pamphlets which have not been officially ordered by the central planners? You know that you probably won't be killed for doing so, but you also know you'll lose your printer's license and therefore your livelihood. Your children might not get into university. Your wife might not get her medicine. It's just not worth it. Once you've made that small compromise, though, others follow. Though you don't think much of communist ideology or any way you're indifferent to it, when you are presented with the collected works of Stalin, you agree to print them. You know, why not? If you don't do it, other people will. Though you disagree in a vague way with the new government policy on land confiscation, it doesn't affect you personally, and you don't object to printing pamphlets about that either. Meanwhile, all across eastern Germany, and other owners of other printing presses are making the same decisions. And after a while, with nobody being shot and nobody going to prison and nobody even feeling any particular pangs of conscience, the only books left to read are the ones of which the communist regime approves. Same applies to your free time. You're the owner of that printing press. Would you risk your job, your children's schooling, your wife's access to health care simply in order to play chess in an independent club? Of course not. You know, on the other hand, would you consider yourself a deeply implicated collaborator just because you do play chess at the Free German Youth's official chess club? No, probably not. But again, the result of that behavior was the total disappearance of all unofficial, non-state-sponsored organizations from East European societies. Who then was singing the party, the party, the party is always right? It was people who wanted to get on with their lives, rebuild their countries, educate their children, feed their families and stay far away from those in power, but who nevertheless lived in a system which demanded that all of those things be done through state institutions. Even those who were utterly apolitical and held utterly apolitical jobs sometimes found it impossible not to collaborate. Andrzej Ponufnik, a Polish composer, had no love at all for communism, a system which he described in his memoirs as artistically and morally dishonest. But after the war, he wanted nothing except to rebuild his country and compose music. In order to be allowed to do so, he had to join the Union of Polish Composers. And when all the union members were ordered to compete to compose a new song of the United Party, 
he was forced to do that too, join the competition. And if he refused, he was told that not only would he lose his membership of this union, he was the most, at that time, the most famous composer in Poland. The whole union would lose the financial support of the state and there would be no more music composition in Poland. So he wrote his song and he said later, and I quote, literally in a few minutes, setting the ridiculous text to the first jumble of notes which came into my head. It was rubbish and I smiled to myself as I sent it off to the educators. And to his eternal embarrassment, he won first prize. <laughs> now, the USSR's intention was clear, you know, eliminate not only opposition, but also the potential for opposition. Destroy not only dissent, but even the possibility of future dissent. And let me remind those of you here who are too young to remember, round about the year 1950, it looked very much as if the communist parties of Eastern Europe would succeed. The public sphere had been cleansed so thoroughly that a tourist visiting Warsaw or Budapest or East Berlin, or for that matter, Prague, Sofia, or Bucharest, in the early 1950s would have observed no political opposition whatsoever. The press contained regime propaganda. Holidays were celebrated with regime parades. Conversations did not deviate from the official line if an outsider were present. All serious outside analysts believed this system would last forever. So in this sense, the West was also taken in by Soviet ideology. We also came to believe it was possible to create a totalitarian society into which no outside information could ever penetrate. And we believed that the Soviet Union and the East European communists had done it. You all know the end of the story, so I won't pretend otherwise. As it turned out, the experience of living in a society which forced everyone to agree with everything dictated by the central government had profound psychological consequences. Despite all the state's efforts and despite all the education and the propaganda, many people retained an inner sense of disjunction or discomfort. And even people who seemed to be the most active collaborators often felt this. Jacek Czernadl, a Polish writer and a youth activist at the time, remembers it like this. He writes, I was shouting from a tribune at some university meeting in Wrocław and simultaneously felt panicked at the thought of myself shouting. I told myself I was trying to convince the crowd by shouting, but in reality, I was trying to convince myself. So if the genius of Soviet totalitarianism was its ability to get people to go along without apparent protest, this was its first fatal flaw. The need to conform to a mendacious political reality left many people haunted by the sense that they were living double lives. A celebrated Hungarian psychoanalyst, Lily Haidu-Gimisch, was perhaps the first to diagnose this as a problem in patients as well as in herself. I play the game which is offered by the regime, she told friends, though as soon as you accept that rule, you are in a trap. At the time of the Arab Spring, Frank Fukuyama wrote a very brilliant short article about the role which dignity and the deprivation of dignity play in convincing people to protest. The communist regimes made exactly the same mistake. You know, by forcing people to collaborate, they made them ashamed, resentful, and eventually rebellious. The second fatal flaw lay in the totalitarian nature of the Soviet communist project itself. By trying to control every aspect of society, the regimes eventually turned every aspect of society into a potential source of dissent. You know, the state had dictated high daily quotas for the workers. And so an East German workers' strike against poor working conditions in 1953 mushroomed quickly into a protest against the state. You know, the state had dictated what artists could paint and what writers could write. 
And so an artist or writer who painted or wrote something different automatically became a political dissident too. The state had dictated that no one could form independent organizations. And so anybody who founded one, however anodyne, became de facto an opponent of the regime. And when large numbers of people joined an independent organization, as, for example, when some 10 million Poles joined the Solidarity Trade Union in 1980 and 81, the regime's very existence was suddenly at stake. Communist ideology and Marxist-Leninist economic theory contain the seeds of their own destruction in a different sense, too. As you, when you look at this period, you can see that. Eastern European governments' claims to legitimacy were based on promises of future prosperity and high living standards, which were supposedly guaranteed by scientific Marxism. You know, all of the banners and posters, the solemn speeches, the newspaper editorials, and eventually the television programs spoke of ever faster and ever greater growth. But although there was some growth, it was never as high as the propaganda made it out to be. The living standards never did rise as quickly and dramatically as they did in Western Europe, which was a fact that could not long be hidden. In 1950, Poland and Spain had very similar GDPs. By 1988, Poland's had indeed risen by two and a half times, but Spain's had risen 13 times. Radio for Europe, travel, tourism, all brought home this disparity, which only grew larger as technological change in Western Europe accelerated. In the end, this gap between reality and ideology meant that the communist parties wound up spouting meaningless slogans, which even they knew that made no sense. You know, Mar Marxism became so cocooned in what Orwell once called newspeak that it couldn't be refuted. My friend, the philosopher Roger Scruton, who has also long-standing connections to AI, puts it like this. He wrote, facts no longer made contact with the theory, which had risen above the facts on clouds of nonsense, rather like a theological system. The point was not to believe the theory, but to repeat it ritualistically, and in such a way that both belief and doubt became irrelevant. You know, in this way, the concept of truth disappeared from the intellectual landscape and was replaced by that of power. Once people were unable to distinguish truth from ideological fiction, however, then they were also unable to solve or even to describe the worsening social and, and economic problems of the societies that they ruled. Over time, as again most of you will know, some political opponents of the communist regimes came to understand these inherent weaknesses of Soviet totalitarianism which you can see very clearly in the period I, I've written about. In his very brilliant 1978 essay, The Power of the Powerless, the Czech dissident Václav Havel called upon his countrymen to take advantage of their ruler's obsession with total control. If the state wants to monopolize every sphere of human life, he wrote, then every thinking citizen should work to preserve what he called the independent life of society, which he defined as including everything from self-education and thinking about the world through free creative activity, to the most various freed civic attitudes, including independent self or social self-organization. He also urged his compatriots to discard false and meaningless jargon and to live in truth, to speak and to act, in other words, as if the regime did not really exist. In due course, some version of this independent life of society, some we now call it civil society, began to flourish in many unusual ways. The Czechs formed jazz bands. The Hungarians joined academic discussion clubs. The East Germans created an unofficial peace movement to go alongside the official one. The Poles organized underground scouting troops. I know many, many graduates of this underground scouting movement, which enormous organization, and eventually, of course, more famously, independent trade unions. 
Everywhere, people played rock music, they organized poetry readings, they set up clandestine businesses, they held underground philosophy seminars, they sold black market meat, and they went to church. They also told jokes, which were often very subversive indeed. In a different kind of society, these activities would have been considered apolitical. And even in Eastern Europe, they didn't necessarily constitute, in this period that we're talking about in the late 40s and early 50s, they didn't constitute opposition as such. But they gave people what they felt were spheres of freedom, and they allowed them to control some aspects of their own lives, and they gave them back the dignity which the totalitarian regimes had taken away. I have more I could say about this topic, how it's related to the modern world, to contemporary arguments about democracy and democratization, and to the many forms of authoritarianism and totalitarianism which remain. But I think it's better to stop now to take your questions and comments and to see if there are further topics from this book that you'd like to discuss. Thank you, Leon. Thank you. Thank you. If I could ask a question. I think I've read all the, all the reviews of your book, and I think somebody, I just want to give word to, I think somebody said, well, you know, she takes it to 56 when things started to look hopeful, you know, Hungary, and then 56. But of course, the truth is another 30 years had to pass. The boot returned to the face. And I wonder if you've given a thought, I, I'm sure you'll be asked about this. It's more than history, and I think this is part of the reason you get this reception, your book gets this reception. I mean, how do we deal with the moral devastation that, I mean, I, I addressed it in my book somewhat too. The Czechs had lustrace, you know, they had lustrations, right? I mean, in my introduction, I deliberately slipped in compromise that, that slid into complicity. How do you deal with this horrific moral legacy? It looks like almost the way you deal with it is indicative of how successful you are. In other words, post-communist countries, right? It looks like the Poles are doing quite well. The Romanians made, you know, one step forward, two step backwards. I think Hungarians are doing rather well. I think, I think the Czechs are doing well. This issue of how to deal with the complicity in terror, of course, is the central issue in China now. Because, you know, the children don't know about the Great Leap Forward. They don't know about Tiananmen. They don't know about the Cultural Revolution. How do you deal Based on what you learn, what would you suggest for dealing with this, with this huge moral scourge? That's a very difficult and broad question, and it, it applies not only to post-communist societies, actually, I should say. First of all, the book ends in 56 for, because this is a, there's a reason for that. The high Stalinism lasts until Stalin's death. Then there are these series of rebellions and protests and revolution. And then following, following 56, these countries do become very different, and they begin to have, there's more differentiation between them. But the, the question of how you remember it and how you deal with it has been one that has haunted this region since 1989. And it's been a topic of discussion and even a central political issue. I, I remember once joking with someone that if in the West, politics are divided between people who are, let's just be very superficial here, you know, who more in favor of the state on one side and less in favor of the state on the other side, and they're arguing about welfare versus taxes. In Eastern Europe, there was a period, it's a little, changed a little bit now, when often the, the central political argument in the society was, what do we do about former collaborators? And either you were for dealing with them or, and, and naming them and or even arresting them, or you were against it. And there was a kind of social division that ran through Certainly, Polish politics was divided that way for almost two decades. It's changed now, but for, for almost two decades. And in a way, maybe that's not very surprising. You know, France was divided after the revolution between 
you know, the former monarchists and the former revolutionaries for 100 years, if not longer. I mean, there are people who would say it's, you know, the, those families still know who they are even to this day. So maybe, maybe it's not surprising that, you know, in, in, in that part of the world, there's also a legacy. You know, children of communists feel protective of their parents, their mother, although not, not, not universally so. So it, it remains a central issue. And, and it's complicated by a number of things. One is the politicization of history in the past. And so one of the central features of communism is it has not only an economic theory and a political theory, it also has a theory of history. You know, history is made to conform to a Marxist-Leninist theory. And so the, you know, in 1945, history books are rewritten and they begin to, they, they look back in, in Polish history and one of the best ones, they look back into German history and they discover that Goethe was a proto-Marxist. If only he'd known it at the time. And they try and find roles earlier on, you know, that will explain the present. And so the past is rewritten to accommodate the present and to justify what's being done in the present. Well, what that means is that history has been manipulated. People know it in odd ways. My husband, who's Polish, learned one set of history in school, and then he learned an alternative history at home. He had a neighbor or a family friend who once took him into the woods and showed him where the machine guns were buried, you know, in case the Russians come back, just so that you know where the guns are. This was a different from what he was being taught in school. I asked him, and where were the guns? He's the, I can't remember, but uh, <laughs> rotting, rotting, rusting away underground. So you have a society where history has been manipulated. And you also have the fact that history, you know, not uniquely to this part of the world, can be used by contemporary political parties to make points. So some people, you know, either they dress themselves as victims. It's been done in many countries in many different ways. One of the dangers is a kind of re-politicization or re- Oh, God, I want to make up a word, ideologization of history. <laughs> As I've watched this, I've actually now watched this debate about history for 20 years. I, I wrote about it a little bit in my, when I wrote about my previous book. The more I think about it, the more I conclude that the solution is not really more memory, not more celebration and events, but more detail, more history, more historical knowledge of a detailed kind of knowledge. And so one, one of the best history programs for young people that I know of is done, is organized in Russia by an independent group. And what it is, Memorial organizes a contest. It asks school children to write their family histories. You know, go ask your grandmother, what was she doing in, during the Ukrainian famine? Or what was, what was she doing in 1945? And where was your family? And what was their experience of the war? And they ask people, and, and you know, so they get people to find out, you know, what was it really like for my family and for people I know? And that's a way of getting away from these sweeping statements about, you know, who, who was good and who was bad and broad generalizations. So it almost doesn't matter what conclusions are drawn about history, just that people know as much about it as possible, as much in, and in detail and in stories. That seems to me the best cure for, for this problem. That's been Anne Applebaum with an excellent lecture, a lecture that argues that history offers both the promise of moral reckoning with past injustice and the danger of using ideological alternative facts to cover up those injustices. These lessons remain relevant today. If Mrs. Applebaum is correct that connections with other stories and careful knowledge of history chastens broad generalizations about the past, then personal attention to others' experiences may give us better chance at understanding our present. Thank you for listening. A Happy New Year to all, and I hope you'll join us next time on the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute.